again, I think it's it's a matter of evolving away from it. You know, right now, one of the problems is that our proxies for social cohesion are things like Facebook. And like you say, Facebook is evil and it's crap. It really does a poor job of that function. What we need to do is find alternatives. We need to find ways to bring people together, you know, in, in this in this high-tech spiffy way that we've got that somehow has lasting value to people. You know, it's not just religion. I've been saying this for the last decade. There was a time when atheist meetings were really, really popular, and they were huge. And you get swarms of people coming in, and you get all these people that show up, and they were so excited because for the first time, they're in a group where they can actually express their views without having to justify everything about it. And those are fading. Those We're just seeing less and less of that now. And I, I, I think the old conference format just isn't cutting it anymore. Hey guys, before we get started, I want to tell you about today's show sponsor, Carta. Carta simplifies how startups manage equity, track cap tables, and get valuations. Go to carta.com slash syndicate to get 10% off and learn more about how they can help you with managing your complicated cap table and keeping investors happy. Hey, I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you about a little project I've been working on. I've been working on a sci-fi novel focused on the future of humanity and what happens when we get deeper and deeper into genetic engineering and cybernetic enhancements. It's something that I've been working on. It's a bit of a passion project, and I haven't wanted to tell you guys about it yet because it's one of those things where you never really know if you're going to publish it. Well, now I'm getting so far along in the novel and really starting to love the direction that it's going. I wanted to get some feedback from some of you guys. So if you're interested in checking out the beta version, so to speak, of the novel, you can get the first five chapters for free if you go to disruptors.fm slash book. Just add your email address. I need your hard, honest feedback on the book and how you like it, if you like it, and what, if anything, I could do to improve it. That's the only way that authors and writers and thinkers like myself can try to improve what we're working on and make it more interesting and exciting for the public. So if you guys are interested in this, check out the book. You can go to disruptors.fm slash book. Enter your email address. You'll get the first five chapters emailed to you. It's much further along than that, but I want to just send you the first five chapters so that you don't get overwhelmed and you can provide me a little bit of feedback. And if you like the book, you'll be on the first access list for when it goes live. There may be some bonus beta coupons as well that get handed out for people that help with making the book uh, a better, more awesome experience. So if that's something that you're interested in looking into, the future of humanity and what happens when genetic engineering goes vastly awry, then disruptors.fm slash book. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate your help on this. This is something that I'm pretty passionate about. It's pretty personal and not sure how it's going to turn out yet. Disruptors.fm slash book. And a quick announcement before we jump into today's episode. I wanted to congratulate our first book raffle giveaway winner, Luis Paulo. <laughs> He's listening to us from Brazil. How incredible is that? He's getting a free signed copy of Aubrey de Grey's book, Ending Aging. This week, we've got a one-two punch double whammy. We've got On the Verge by Rebecca Costa and Signals by Dr. Philippa Malmgren. Philippa, or Pippa as she's typically called, was an economic advisor to George W. Bush and is one of the top economists and futurists in the world. And On the Verge by Rebecca Costa, well, Craig Newmark, the founder of Craigslist, says On the Verge presents a useful view of how we can look ahead and invent our own future, often by pre-adapting to possible futures. If you want to get ready for the future and change coming, On the Verge can help you get there. John Scully, the former CEO of Apple, and president of Pepsi-Cola said similar things. Rebecca Costa has the talent to tell stories that illustrate her keen observations and explain important cultural implications and new innovations that touch our lives. These are two incredible books by two incredible guests. 
you haven't listened to the episodes, make sure you do. But if you want to enter in for this raffle, no purchase necessary. Go to disruptors.fm slash raffle or disruptors.fm slash giveaway. Again, we're doing a one-two punch. So if you enter in there, you can sign up for our email list, subscribe on YouTube, tweet about the giveaway. There's a lot of different ways you can enter and you can get more chances to win. If you're interested in that and you want to get free signed copies of both these books, then again, disruptors.fm slash giveaway. Do you run a business or blog and hate hosting and managing your site? If you do, check out WP Engine, the managed WordPress hosting company, 500,000 plus sites trust to simplify everything. They've got a special offer just for you listeners. If you go to disruptors.fm slash WP Engine, you'll get 35 free premium studio press themes with any purchase. Look at our site. I couldn't do this design on my own. You need themes. These guys help you manage everything and simplify it. Save yourself a ton of time and headache in the process. Disruptors.fm slash WP Engine. And now, let's get on with the program. Welcome to The Disruptors, the podcast about the future of all of us, where we look at the technologies, trends, and societal norms shaping our collective future. Hear the world's top minds, share their insights and predictions on the convergence, direction, and ethics of exponential technologies transforming life as we know it. You can learn more and stay up to date at disruptors.fm. The history of science has been one fraught with conflict from dogmatic thinking and religious belief for time immemorial. And today we're diving into that and much more and what it means as we get into today's era of exponential technologies, increasing innovation, and increasingly strong backlash against technology and science. Today, we've got PZ Myers on the program. He's a well-known atheist blogger, science popularizer, and associate professor of biology at the University of Minnesota Morris. His main blog, Feringola, went on to be acquired by National Geographic, and now he currently blogs at freethoughts.com, where he criticizes creationism, supports feminism, and writes on the topics and trends about the future of all of us. Today was an interesting episode, one that I wanted to do because I think that all too often dogmatic beliefs are what hold us back from building a better world. And I think religion is oftentimes at the forefront of that. Whether you're religious or not, I think this conversation is worth listening to. And I think it's always important to have an outside or open perspective when discussing fact versus belief. In today's episode, we'll discuss the problem with religion and creationism clouding public discord, why evolution is so important to understand and how conservatives have created false doubt. Why PZ's more than a little worried about CRISPR and genetic engineering? The truth about Gattaca and designer babies, especially post-CRISPR. Why fake news mirrors religious beliefs and is caused by many of the same human flaws? And what scientists can and should learn from preachers and priests? And now, before we jump into this slightly controversial episode, a warning. This is slightly controversial. Okay, you've gotten your warning. If you're continuing to listen, you know what this is going to be about. We're talking about atheism, evolution, God, and the future of science in all of us. I hope that you guys enjoy this. And if you do, consider supporting us. Disruptors.fm slash Patreon, or just share the podcast with a friend. We could really use your help to make this more sustainable and to make a bigger impact on the world. Disruptors.fm slash Patreon. And now without further ado, I give you P.Z. Myers. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. 
So I wanted to start out, you had a nice quote, science and religion are essentially fundamentally at odds. And I think we should start there because it's something that comes up a lot. Yeah, well, you know, my, my version of science is relying on empiricism and observation and experiment in order to get at the truth. And that's not what religion does. Religion is about revelation. They claim to already have the truth. So everything they do is simply rationalizing what they already think they know. Which is really dangerous because you can never move forward. Right. And it also is a great way to entrench ridiculous beliefs. I mean, I deal with creationists all the time. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of Christians out there who think creationism is ridiculous. But it, there's also these this small group who are busy digging a hole and are insisting that they do not want to get out of this hole. So, yeah, it's it's because of that commitment to an a priori belief that they're, they're getting worse and worse. And you see it happening with scientists, even like world-class scientists who will try to prove the Earth is 6,000 years old. How does this happen? <laughs> oh, I wish I knew. But I don't, in, in general, what it is, is you start with a religious belief. You start with a commitment and then boom, you're, you're not doing experiments. You know, most of us scientists, when we do experiments, what we're trying to do is disprove a hypothesis because you, can, you can't really prove your hypothesis. All you can do is disprove all the alternatives. And so you, you go out there and you, and you try and address your science by uh, doing falsification. And that's the last thing a creationist wants to do is attempt to falsify their beliefs. So they, they get in deeper and deeper. But, you know, it's it's not just it's not just uh, necessarily religious. Yeah, fake, fake, fake news. We're all doing the exact same thing now. It's horrible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But like another example is uh, Paul Davies, the physicist who's very full of himself and thinks he has discovered a new approach to cancer. And you read his stuff. You know, he keeps coming out with this. He just recently came out with an article where he's talking about his new theory of cancer, which he came up with 10 years ago. So I don't think it's new anymore. But you read it and it's laughable. It's it's the kind of thing somebody who has no background in biology or specifically cancer research would propose as a hypothesis. What's the hypothesis out of curiosity? Uh, Paul Davies argues that cancers are atavisms. That what they're doing is they, they a cancer is a cell that has reverted to a precambrian state of existence. And that it's, it's exercising a program that evolved for single-celled life forms in ancient seas. And it's a, it's a survival strategy for the cell, he says. And it's, it's basically Heckel's recapitulation reborn and it's, it's total garbage. But he's getting money for it. Yeah, he's getting published for it. That's part of the problem with science is you have to say something outlandish to even get noticed these days. I guess not just science. Uh, is that true? I don't know. Well, it, it depends. I mean, there's a lot of really good work being done in cancer research, for instance. And the work that we respect is good, solid, well-founded research. You know, that's it's got empirical numbers. It's got statistics. It's got you know actual evidence that therapies work. But it doesn't. It doesn't get everybody's attention. You know, if you've got if you've got a, an approach that yields a two percent increase in the survival rate of patients of a particular kind of cancer, that's not news. It's great news for the people with that cancer, but uh, it, it doesn't make the headlines. Is there a way to fix that? Now, two percent. I will say two percent isn't huge by any means. I was interested. I was interesting. I was talking right. to somebody, and he was saying, "Wouldn't it be great if we?" Could could have a drug that had a 20% efficacy rate. You would be 100% cured if you were in that 20% and it killed everyone else. Because as long as we figured out who that 20% was that it worked for, it's something much better than the rest of the medicine. So 
it's kind of like that personalized approach, but you have to be more extreme doing that instead of focusing off a broad. Yeah, well, the, when you look at when you look at what hospitals are doing, hospitals compile an awful lot of research statistics, and there, what you see is, yeah, they're thrilled with a two percent increase. If you're getting that two percent every year, you're getting this incremental improvement. You know, if you're if you're constantly honing your techniques and you're getting better at diagnosis and you're be- getting better at treatment, you don't see you don't see what you're describing. You don't see a, a sudden. 20% of the patients are fine. And no, what you see instead is a lot of variation, but you can kind of work your way in the correct direction and incrementally improve the odds. And that's the game they're in. It would be lovely if somebody came up with a radical new approach that, um, oh, for instance, years ago, Judah Folkman came up with his uh, his theory that angiogenesis was central to cancer. And, you know, that was a, that was a big change. But again, what you discover when you do that is you don't suddenly get everyone cured. You get improvement in some therapies and uh, others where it's it's disappointing. And yeah, that's this that's the mundane reality of science. Yeah, I've seen some compelling stuff that seems to be each cancer or a lot of cancers have different mechanisms of, of action or of cause. So you can't really there, there's no such thing right. as a universal cure, especially between individuals. Exactly. And then and then of course the other thing is cancers evolve. So you get something that is effective against you know one type of cancer in your in your system right right then, but then they're constantly mutating, and so you've got another cancer that comes along, and the same patient a little longer. You're derived from the original stock, and your therapy doesn't work anymore. So good metaphor for religion. <laughs> so how do how do we how do we deal with that? Because a lot of people listening to that will feel offended when I say that, and part of that is the point. That's part of the reason I wanted to get you on is people need to think outside the box. But I think looking backwards, that I would say there's been huge, huge negatives caused by a lot of the world religions worldwide. And there's been some positive uh-huh. in that it's been some type of force. Even if we are unifying against each other, we are unifying for something. But we seem to have evolved beyond that point. Yeah, well, you know, the... When I think about it and I, I try to figure out what's so great about uh, religion, like you say, there are some positives and a lot of the positives are about you know, social cohesion and people working together and people finding common cause. All stuff that you can do without requiring that you believe in Jesus, right? So it's it's all the, the supposed positives of religion could actually be equally well regarded as positives of humanism. So, okay, I, I've never heard a compelling argument for a real positive advantage to religion. I wouldn't say it's necessarily positive now. It's kind of positive in the aspect of I can have carrots or I can have mashed potatoes or I can have McDonald's. If I eat the mashed potatoes, it's a little bit better than the McDonald's, but it's certainly nowhere near the carrots. But somewhere along the line, we found our way to the mashed potatoes <laughs> and we stuck with them because we liked them. And and it's yeah. something where as we, we can take the analogy further, as we get fatter and fatter and it becomes less sustainable, we might need to get off the mashed potatoes. But we don't want to because we like them. We're hooked on them. Right. Do you see any way to do that? Yes. Peacefully? Oh, peacefully. Yeah. Well, it's got to be done peacefully. You know, violence wouldn't solve anything when, when you get aggressively violent with with somebody's deepest held beliefs you just get resistance and it, it makes them stronger in their belief unfortunately uh, what's the way around it well I think it's gonna it's gonna require incremental evolution to get away from it that uh, you know what we find is that in progressive societies you get less and less religious belief right and it's because you raise up a kid with a healthy attitude who looks on the world in a positive way actually gets value from doing science or a science-like approach uh, they naturally just 
just sort of wean themselves away from religion. So you know, we just have to do it generation by generation and eventually get rid of religion that way. Not that we'll ever totally get rid of it, but we can try. But what about that evolution aspect that we were talking about with cancer and with viruses? They adapt to the circumstances. They change the rules. They change what's involved in the books. They try to make things more palatable to the to modernity, albeit sacrificing the, the originalness and the, the reality of what something was. Yes. And, you know, you see that you see religion doing this all the time. I don't know if you've ever gone to a Unitarian Universalist church, but they're kind of representative of that where they they still maintain all the form of a church and religion, but they don't really believe in the deity. They don't have a holy book. They've just sort of discarded those things. And I don't find them viable. I don't think they, I think they're fine in the short term. And if, you, if you're into that sort of thing, great. But I don't think they're going to capture the imagination and thrive in future generations. So, you know, yeah, you can, you can take religion and dilute it, but the weaker you make it, the less appealing it becomes. Yeah, eventually, if we want to make heroin or cocaine, if you make it not potent enough, then eventually you go back to something else. Right. Yeah. And so, so I think that the best strategy for us is to just to just keep plugging away, you know, set religion aside, set a personal example, do good stuff, do fun stuff, you know, learn, all that kind of thing. And that's how we will outlast them because we'll ultimately be much more appealing. So there are some things we're losing today in society, that sense of connectedness as we're talking between a screen, which is still good, but we see a lot less social cohesion happening. We see a lot less people involved in groups and memberships, getting out in the in their communities, etc. Religion, that was something that was always good at that. And while it had plenty of cons, that was definitely a pro that we are losing. How do we replace that when people are getting lonelier and lonelier? They're killing themselves because they're stuck on Facebook all day and they can't help they can't help <laughs> it and Zuckerberg's evil. What do we do about that? Well, again, I think it's it's a matter of evolving away from it. Right now, one of the problems is that our proxies for social cohesion are things like Facebook. And like you say, Facebook is evil and it's crap. It really does a poor job of that function. What we need to do is find alternatives. We need to find ways to bring people together, you know, in, in this in this high tech spiffy way that we've got that somehow has lasting value to people. You know, it's not just religion. I've been saying this for the last decade. There was a time when atheist meetings were really, really popular and they were huge. And you get swarms of people coming in and you get all these people who'd show up and they were so excited because for the first time they're in a group where they can actually express their views without having to justify everything about it. And those are fading. Those We're just seeing less and less of that now. And I, I, I think the old conference format just isn't cutting it. Any theories as to why? Is that just our attention spans? Is that our desire to be around others? Is it something else? Too much too much interesting stuff going on? Too much Netflix? That could be part of it. Yeah. Yeah. I got to admit, a good Netflix movie is much more entertaining than an atheist conference. Um, <laughs> but part of it is simply what I've, what I've been seeing is growing dissension among, for instance, atheists, where once upon a time, they were, it was exciting enough to get together and say, oh, hey, we don't believe in God. We believe in separation of church and state, all this kind of stuff, and that unites us. And uh, what's happened over the last decade is that increasingly more and more of the people who were the big draws for atheist conferences have 
proven to be a little bit deplorable. And the better you get to know someone, the more things you find to disagree with. And that has kind of split the community in a lot of ways. But to be to be fair, though, media pressure does that on everyone. If you really get someone yeah. that has, and if you look at, I mean, if you look at at least US media and US norms, I would imagine if you were to take anyone and put them under a microscope, they're going to come out not looking ideal. I imagine if you get someone who's attacking right. the institution of what most of society is built around, they're definitely going to come out looking not ideal just because of the people that are reporting the news. Oh, well, yeah. And it's human nature. I mean, every political campaign, you know, this happens every election year, you'll get a whole bunch of candidates out there and the media will focus on showing how each one sucks. And that's kind of an inevitable consequence. And because we're people, we all of us have ugly things in our background. We have ugly views. Uh, we try to sanitize them for the public, but they're they're always going to be there. And if you dig deep enough, you'll find them. Even me, even this guy, even Maybe. this guy. Yeah. How do you how do you think about Buddhism and a more personalized spiritual approach as replacing a more conventional religion? The the more personalized approach, sure. I I don't know about Buddhism. Buddhism is kind of a fad. I you know my my wife lived in Thailand for a year, um, a very Buddhist country, and. You know, when you're when you're right there in the middle of these countries of the East that have Buddhism as a foundational belief, you discover that no, it's just like religions everywhere. You know, they'd like to say that there's no deity, but then they sort of revere Buddha and statues of Buddha, that there are all kinds of rituals and dogma and prohibitions about dealing with, with these idols and things like that. What we've got here in the US typically is a kind of sanitized, stripped down version of Buddhism. Where it's just yeah, just meditation and personal beliefs and like the oneness of the universe and things like that. But um, I, I would think that a lot of Eastern Buddhists would call that not Buddhism at all. Is that the trick to just get rid of the garbage from religion and keep the good stuff? That that would be a nice trick. I don't know, if, you know, that so much of what I read about the incorporation of Eastern philosophies into, you know, Western belief systems is just utter silliness. And then, you know, carry it to an extreme and you just get Deepak Chopra. And I don't, I don't think Deepak Chopra is an improvement over the Pope or anybody else. Okay. Where do you see humanity headed? What, uh, what worries you the most? Oh, you know, I'm 61 years old. There's a lot of things that worry me. <laughs> I have become increasingly cynical and, and disappointed in the universe as I get older. You know, there are the, there are some real problems with physical things like global, global climate change. That's always going to be a big worry. And especially since we don't seem to be doing anything to correct it. You know, if, if I wanted to be a little bit more biological and a little weirder, uh, I would say a bigger change coming down the pike that, you know, if we survive global climate change, the next step is that we're going to have to worry about is uh, poorly considered changes to the human species that are going to be coming along, that it's becoming increasingly easy to modify genomes. And we have no idea what we're doing there. Yeah, you can go in and tweak things, but everything in the genome is interlinked with everything else. And you wiggle one little piece and you're changing everything. And uh, yeah, you know, the, the biohackers, they kind of worry me because I, I don't think they're very bright. They've got the techniques. They, they, they understand pharmacology, but uh, they don't understand how human systems are assembled and they're, they're going to screw it up. I just know. Even the ones that are bright, it's just when you're dealing with, there's the unknown unknowns. You don't know what you don't know. Right. 
And the ones that are really dangerous are the ones who are confident that they do know the unknowns when they don't, and they just charge in and start adjusting things in dangerous ways. So, you know, on priorities, I would say the imminent threat is things like global climate change, overpopulation, pollution. You know, we, we are we are demolishing the ecosystem and we rely on that to survive. Those those are approximate causes, and if we get through those, the next step is shape of humanity when we, have, when we acquire the ability to change that shape what are we going to change it to? speaking of changing that shape your your first blog the one that got acquired by national geographic was called Ferangula. i think i'm pronouncing that Fringula, yeah, yeah. Close to right tell me a little bit more about the meaning of that and why it's important why would you why would you title a blog <laughs> something that's almost impossible to even spell <laughs> but no it's easy it's obvious I mean, everyone knows fringulas no it's because well i never set up a blog to be some kind of popular mass culture sort of thing, that the blog was just an opportunity for me to express myself. I had recently moved to Morris, Minnesota, which is a very small town out in the upper Midwest. It's a really nice university. It's kind of an elite liberal arts university, but it's small and specialized. So I'm the sole developmental biologist here, and I kind of felt this need to communicate more regularly with other people who were interested in the same things I was. So um, I set up this blog way back when. It's still going, by the way. It's still called Perundula. And it's really just an outlet for me to say, here's here's stuff I think is cool. Here's stuff that really annoys me. You know, get off my lawn. That's what it is. Clint Eastwood style. <laughs> what is a Ferengula? I was listening right. to a talk you had. Yeah. A, a Ferengula, uh, it's, it's a word coined by Bill Ballard to describe a particular stage in embryonic development. So you've heard of a blastula or a gastrula, and there's a neurula. So uh, blastula is when you're forming the, you know, the initial population of cells. They're going to move and differentiate into the various tissues. A gastrula is a step where everything is moving inwards to generate the three germ layers, you know, endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm. A neurula is the stage where the nervous system is starting to form. And then the next stage after that is called the pharyngula. And the pharyngula in a vertebrate is a stage when uh, the embryo is forming things like gill arches, branchial arches, when it's forming major organ systems, when genes like the Hox genes are being expressed to set up the organization of the body plan. So it's it's everything before that is kind of here, just set up the general tissues that we need to work with. And then the fringular stage is when the information is generated to create things like the body plan and the form of the organism. And it just happens to be the stage I was most interested in studying. And so, you know, I'm trying to think of, what am I going to call this blog? Everyone has a name for their blog. I think, well, this is what I do. I work with pharyngulas. So there it was. And the way I heard you describe it, it was it was similar to a construction site. They come, they dump all the stuff there, and then it's just sitting there. Nothing's been really commenced yet. Yes. Basically, everything was kind of the same until then. Right. So in the, in the pharyngula stage, uh, if you've heard of the hox genes, the hox genes, for instance, set up the anterior, posterior axis of the animal, and they specify, oh, this is a head. Now, this is where you're going to make the forelimbs. Here's where you're going to make the hindlimbs. Here's where you're going to make the tail. So in, in some ways, what's going on in the front of the stage is like the, the architects and engineers have shown up on the site where all the materials are laid out. And they staked out, here's where you're going to build this, and here's where you're going to build that, uh, and lay out the, the entire plan of the construction. And yet it kind of proves that evolutionarily, what's the significance? Oh, evolutionarily, what's, what the significance of is that uh, the fringe of the stage is a highly conserved stage. 
So everything before that is less conserved and everything after that is less conserved. So it's like, you know, when you're bringing in the, the, the stuff to the construction site, you know, some places you might bring it in by train, others you might bring it in by truck. You might have bricks or you might have boards, whatever. The construction materials can vary. So everything in the early stages is highly variable. But in order to build a viable multicellular organism, you have to have this general plan that's laid out in the fungal stage. And that's consistent across uh, the vertebrata. So all chordates do the same thing of laying out this floor plan, the body plan of the organism at the fringular stage. But then after that, things can diverge. You know, obviously they diverge because you and I are human beings and we're not chimpanzees and we're not turtles and all these other organisms. They all went through this pharyngeal stage, which were, which is very similar in all of us. And then you get the species-specific variation occurring after that. What does that mean from a Darwinist perspective of how evolution happens? Oh, now, now you get into some interesting stuff. Uh, because back in, back in the 19th century, you know, you heard of Heckel? Only from your talks earlier. Yeah, yeah. So after Darwin announced his theory, Ernst Heckel came along with his own theory, which is a recapitulation theory, which says that every organism goes through all the stages of its ancestors to develop. And then what you do is you add new stuff at the end of that developmental sequence. And the idea was that you would then be able to trace through the evolutionary history of your organisms by just looking at animals developing. And you would say, well, okay, there was a time back in the precambrian when we were going through a gastrula stage, and then we evolved into the, you know, the neuriola stage, and then we developed into which is, it's all, it's all bogus. None of that's true. That's not what happens. Uh, where it's has modern consequences is when we try to think about how you can change an organism. And there are some things you can change, you know, in an evolutionary sense that are fairly straightforward and others that are really difficult. So one of the things we can say, because it's so consistent, is that it's really hard to modify the pharyngula stage in any significant way. One example of that was like for us, for us tetrapods, we are all four-limbed animals, right? Think about it. You go, you go across the vertebrates and you look at all the terrestrial animals and they all have only four limbs. That's because at the pharyngula stage, you lay out where the limbs will go. You specify, okay, four limbs here, hind limbs there. We don't have a way to go in, well, evolution couldn't find a way to go in and say, oh man, it'd be really useful to have six limbs. Let's put one in the middle. They can't because that would disrupt the entire body plan to go in and just change it so radically. So you see these constraints in evolution and parts of them are developmental constraints like that one that says, no, you can't do that because if you make that change at this really critical sensitive time in development, you're disrupting everything and everything will fall into chaos and you won't get a viable organism out of it. So we're stuck with four limbs. You can't build a basement if you haven't dug the dug the foundations Correct. first. So is that, does that mean if we were to find just life on other planets, odds are they'll have similar types of limitations. For instance, most of them will probably have the same number of limbs, the same number of heads, etc. No. Not as us, but as uh, themselves and other creatures. They they will they will have they will have limitations, of course, developmental constraints on their development, but they will be different. That oh, for example, when we look back at the history of, of vertebrates, there's you know, we all have these five digits at the ends of our hands and feet. You find some organisms like many amphibians, of course, have reduced that to three or even two. When you go back in the early history of vertebrates, what you discover is that they were experimenting with different arrangements of digits. And for instance, some of the early amphibians had 13 digits 
on each hand, but they didn't make it. So you could imagine a situation on a different planet where, for this, you know, in a similar way, they're tinkering with what's a good number of digits to have? What's a way to build a set of fingers if they have fingers? What's a good way to specify the number of limbs? And they could all come up with different solutions. Evolutionarily, is it easier to get rid of something or to add? I feel like with a tree, you can snip a bud and that makes things a lot easier than having to grow a new branch. Yeah, that's a difficult question to answer, actually. (laughs) Very good. Uh, Yeah, it's, it's, it seems reasonable to say it's easier to lose a pathway. However, one of the big problems that arose in the early 20th century is something called Mueller's Ratchet, where he noticed that, you know, if you look at how, how genetics works and how evolution works, it's also incredibly easy to add duplicates of part of the pathway. So Mueller's Ratchet argues that, well, you know, it's really easy just to make a copy of this gene. So now you got two of those genes, and those two genes are working together to generate some structure, and initially just redundancy. But what could happen is one of those copies acquires a new mutation, and it does something subtly different, just a little bit different initially. And then what will happen is, if that's advantageous, it will be reinforced. So you'll tend to get this increase and the number of genes in an organism just because of that simple mechanic. So that's why it's, that's why it's called a ratchet is because it only goes one way. Uh, and it gets to the point where you've got this new duplicate, it's got this new function and you can't delete it without losing all of the other functions associated with it. Uh, so that's, so things, you know, terminal deletions. If you're going to delete something that does something fairly trivial on the surface, those you can easily lose. But things that are deep in the pathway are really tricky because they've got so many dependencies associated with them. But when you start knocking them out, you, do- you knock out more than just the one gene. You knock out a whole bunch of things. And that's kind of what we're learning now with CRISPR and Cas9 is when we make changes, other things happen. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. That there, There's a new buzzword floating around in the scientific community. It's called omnigenic. Uh, it's the idea that every single gene affects every other feature in the organism. And so, you know, you can't simply excise. You know, it would be nice to say, hey, you know, we developed something that would just add another limb or delete a limb. Turns out you can't do that very easily. It's it's because there's so many things tied with it. You can reshape a limb, but you can't really totally get rid of it. Well, it's like sickle cell anemia. It was great for a while and it's terrible now. It was something that was designed to help people survive malaria. Oh, we don't use the word design. <laughs> uh, very, very true. We do not use the word design. It was something that we stumbled into that was very helpful. Yes, it was an accidental clues that had just happened to help you survive malaria. How do we, but had other side effects. How do you look at genes and traits? So for instance, some things are advantageous, but they aren't ubiquitous. So you'll you'll see cats that have seven I've heard seven toed cats is something that is recessive. It keeps yeah. coming. We're all getting brown hair. Uh, what is the what is the actual structure of how that works? Do we do we really understand that? Well, sort of, yeah. I mean, we polydactyl cats, for instance, the gene has been identified that causes that. It's 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 basically an error in Hox gene expression in the terminal limb bud. Uh, things like hair color. Oh, yeah, we we know what genes are involved there. The thing is. There are multiple genes involved in both of those pathways. Oh, there was, there was recently an interesting paper, was it in Nature, about uh, red hair. You know, that for a long time people argue, well, you know, red hair, it's just, it's just caused by a single gene change. Single, you know, this gene that synthesizes, that regulates the synthesis of melanin. But what they did is when they started probing deeper into hair color, they discovered that, for instance, there are something like 200 alleles, that are 200 genes that affect the darkness of your hair. So there's all this stuff going on 
it's 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 you know, and, and it makes sense when you look at the world around you you don't find that all red-haired people have exactly the same shade of red hair right same with brown hair there's all kinds of variation um once upon a time my beard was brown but it had streaks of red in it there's these subtle variations that are all over the place uh so there are a great many genes that influence these so yeah that's there's an increasing appreciation of the fact that no there's not just one simple gene that controls everything there's a whole host of them that cooperate to create a structure. Is that one of the most dangerous things in science? Let's say I give you a paper and I ask you to proofread it and I say it has one error in it. You're going to look until you find that error and then you're probably not going to look quite as hard after that because suddenly you're ready to publish. Yeah. It's, you know, there's, there's kind of selection for this sort of thing that everyone loves the simple, clear answer. Gene X does Y. That's what we want to hear. And people don't want to hear. It's, it's harder to publish. Gene X contributes 20%. To why and these other genes over here probably do something else. Uh, it's it's also a consequence of the reductionist approach to science. That what we generally do in science is we start pairing away all the variables. We try to get the simplest system we can, and that process of removing the variables is also affecting the result. So when you've got the system simple enough so that you can just so that you can isolate, for instance, the effect of a single gene, uh, you've also before you did your experiment, you got rid of everything that might have affected it, and that that's going to bias your results. Yeah. So for, I'll oh, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say that uh, for a long time I've worked on zebrafish and zebrafish are just a marvelous system to work with. They're a really elegant model system. Uh, they're, they're vertebrates, so it's easier to get grant money for them. They're simple. Uh, they share a lot of the same features that we do uh, in, in slightly different ways, of course, because they're fish. Uh, but at the same time, zebrafish are a highly inbred species. They're lab-bred species. Um, the original stock was collected at, at, you know, at the height of the British Empire, well, at the beginning of the British Empire, actually. I think it was like 1835 or something. And they've been inbred ever since. So, for example, when George Streisinger, who's the guy who really got zebrafish on the map, started his experiment, he just went to the pet store, got some fish, he bred them together and discovered this remarkable thing that they have almost no lethal alleles. So you can do things like make homozygous zebrafish and they live. You know, they, they, this does expose some terrible recessive allele that causes a disease that kills them instantly, uh, as would happen if you did that with a human being. Uh, they've been, they've had a lot of the variation in the genome bred out of them, which makes them handy as a model system, but not so handy if you're trying to work out all the details of what generates a particular variation. I wanted to take a quick time out to tell you guys about today's show sponsor, Carta. As a founder, investor, or startup employee, you know that most of the wealth in the tech industry, it comes from equity. It's not from salary. But how you manage equity, how we manage equity, it's broken. It can be complicated to figure out who owns how much of a startup and to share that important information and documents between companies and VCs. And for VCs to see how investments are performing real time, that's incredibly important for raising your next fund. Many investors and companies still use spreadsheets, paper certificates, and slow-moving service providers to keep that kind of information on hand and to share with prospective investors. These tools and services that are used to manage equity, they're dated, they're slow, and it's funny given that VCs and CEOs are the ones creating the future. Picarda fixes the cap table equity management problem. They offer cap table management, valuations, full-service fund administration, all in one platform. More than 600,000 employee shareholders from companies and VCs at firms like Slack, Coinbase, Flexport, August Capital, Founders Fund, 
all these guys and more, they use Carta to manage hundreds of billions of dollars in equity. To simplify how you manage equity, use Carta. Get 10% off today at carta.com slash syndicate. It'll help you with simplifying the cap table, which will make it easier for you to raise money as a startup and easier for investors to get on board. Carta.com slash syndicate. How do you think about the, the scientific research that we have now? We experiment on a lot of animals to try to find out better ways of essentially making human beings stronger, healthier, sexier, live longer, cure disease, all kinds of things. But yet the models don't necessarily correlate perfectly. How do you think about that? And where do you think we're headed? Well, the, it is it is definitely true. I mean, the model systems aren't perfect. They're not they are not people, and they have their own unique specialization. So, of course, you're going to get variations. Uh, the way we tend to compensate for that is is you try multiple model systems, right? So, if you're if you're working on a drug therapy, for instance, and you test it in mice and you find it's effective in mice, what you then do is you try other model systems. Does it work in cats? Does it work in rats? Uh, you try preliminary trials with humans and try and see if you get similar effects. You work on cells and tissue culture. So yeah, they're all uniquely different, but by looking at multiple systems for something that shares common common functionality, and then you can make conclusions about it. Or you can end up deciding, well, hey, this is, this is great for treating cancer in rats, but it's terrible for treating cancer in people. And that happens. It's trend lines. But when do you decide to make that jump to people? So for instance, we did this episode will come out in a, a, a month or two. We'll see. But we've had the, we had the CRISPR babies born not all that long ago. And we don't really know what's going to happen there. Yeah. Uh, that's that's an interesting because that guy skipped all the ethical standards. <laughs> he just he just ignored all the standards that people have developed for doing this kind of research. So um, who knows? But it's it's an unethical bit of work that he did. So that's it's kind of unfair to compare that to regular science. How do we know when you've got something that's worth marketing to people that will actually help them? Part of the problem is I use the word marketing. So a lot of the companies, it's it's when does it look like it's going to be lucrative? Is this cheap to make and can we sell it for lots of money? Then let's do it. Uh, maybe it's not as efficacious as we think, but hey, we're going to make money. But otherwise, it's it's a matter of, you know, I, I'm on I'm on basic side of science. I, I do basic, basic science and this is more applied science. Uh, so I'm not the most expert person to be talking about it. But I do know that the protocols for testing drugs and things like that are demanding to an extreme that you require so many trials with, you know, mice models, for instance, first, and then you've got to work your way up. You know, you, you've got to do the um, the basic clinical trials first just to test, you get a small population just test. Uh, can we give them at the, the, this drug at a safe dose? So what is the safe dose to treat them with? And you work through a concentration series and see that if, if it actually harms people or is, does anything with any of these concentrations. Then you go through clinical trials where you take select people and you run them through. It's uh, it's expensive and demanding, and it requires a lot of lot of animals and a lot of people to work this stuff out. So, so yeah, bring up the CRISPR example because I think humanity has the ability to be very easily desensitized to things, desensitized to violence. I think the next politician that runs and wants to say the other guy's an asshole and he's got a big butt and things like that will be much easier now that Trump, <laughs> Trump has gotten rid of all of our standards. I think that we go through and when we sign up for a new service, we don't read the hundred pages about how they're selling our mom to slave owners in Idaho so that they can have access to our information, yada, yada. Basically, we, we've kind of become desensitized to the things that become common. And with, with CRISPR, with something like this, 
is this something where the pro is the possibility, just the fact that it's happened already will suddenly lead to a takeoff event, so to speak, where suddenly it's happening all the time? Because sure, this is what the FDA says. But to be honest, a little Johnny needs something so I could give a shit what the FDA says. Right. Well, the CRISPR babies, you know, the guy is arguing that, that you know, the father of these two children was HIV positive. So, oh, we need, we need to help these kids so that they don't get the disease as well. Meanwhile, AIDS doesn't transfer that easily. And, and, you know. He wanted to be famous. Yeah, yeah, that was the big thing. Uh, but yeah, this will always happen that people will make an argument that, oh, we should do this to, for this altruistic means, and it won't always be altruistic. There are these people who, for instance, are injecting themselves with all kinds of things right now. Like, uh, who is that guy, the biohacker who injected himself with a disease? Well, not with a disease, with a gene to increase muscle size. This was done recently, just sort of jammed himself. The thing is that most of that's going to be totally ineffective. It's not going to do a thing. So there's going to be a lot of wasted effort there. And even if it did work, we wouldn't know how to replicate it. It's, it's, um, you know, that, that's another reason that, that scientific trials, clinical trials are so demanding and so rigorous is that we have to figure out all the parameters, all the variables, so we can make it do the right thing that we want it to do again. And when you don't do that, you can't replicate. What's the most realistic science book, video, movie, etc. that you prescribe to, at least in terms of these these type of topics? Oh, <laughs> what movie should you watch? To see? Uh, oh, gosh. Now, I'm, I'm, at the, I'm at the opposite end of being desensitized to this. I'm hypersensitive to variations in scientific treatments in movies, and they all make me, they, they all leave me horrified. You know, I watched Lucy a while back. It was just, oh, man, how did this ever get past the first script? Anyway, there, there, there's lots of really bad ones out there. Lots of people will cite things like Gattaca, and the thing is, Gattaca isn't really about the science. Gattaca is about the use of science by a political system. And in that sense, I, I think Gattaca is a pretty good cautionary tale that you, know, you can have this mythological view of how precise genetics is, and that can lead to some really bad conclusions about how to run your society. But unfortunately, Gattaca doesn't actually get at the science of determining traits from genetics. I'm trying to get there's anyone. Oh man! No, don't go to the movies to to learn science. <laughs> That's my lesson. <laughs> I will. I will agree with that. There, if you guys like this, support us on Patreon, guys. Disruptors.fm/slash/Patreon. Yeah. Gattaca. Gattaca was really interesting. I think one of the big problems with having a view like that, though, is the best science I've seen to date says you're roughly 50% nurture and 50% nature. So the environment around you is impacting your genes in such a way that we can't even really begin to understand, let alone just understanding the genes you have that are in there and on and off. Exactly. That that I would say the science of Gattaca is crap. That no, you can't do that. But I would also point out that the political science of Gattaca is is the way the scientific information can be used is spot on. That you know we've got people right now who are arguing for distinct racial differences that drive behavior, and you know you get the bell curve arguing. Oh well, if you're black, you're committed to being you know, inferior mentally. That's that's the attitude that Gattaca just ramped up to eleven. But it's out there. I don't think he argued that it was fundamentally. I think. He- I think the I think the bell curve guy gets a bad rap. I think the reason why you looked into the science is questionable at best. 
But I don't think that necessarily the science was that questionable. But that's that's something where we're trying to get him on the program. Oh, oh, that's too bad. He's terrible. He doesn't know. He doesn't know biology. Yeah, uh, you know, it, as you said earlier, there is an environmental contribution. There's a genetic contribution. And if you talk to a modern biologist, what they'll tell you is that those are inseparable. That evolution is modifying the expression of genetic information. Genetic information is modifying how you interact with the environment. And and to even try to separate them out is is a futile attempt. So, you know, when, when you've got somebody arguing that there are certain conditions in society that are favorable for one race over another race, uh, you know, I, I would think that poverty is unfavorable for every race. Oh, definitely. Sort of that. <laughs> I would agree with that. I just, I push back against people that think that everyone is the same because inherently we see such large differences in everything. It would be, yeah. it, I mean, if we were all 100% equal, then I think there's our proof for God. <laughs> if we're going into yes. the probabilities there, if we were all 100% the same in everything, then right. it's a, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a point. It's not really one that needs, needs discussing. Yeah. What, are, what are you most excited about these days? What technologies, industries, advancements, et cetera, get you most interested and pumped up? Oh, well, right now, personally, it's spiders. <laughs> really? Are you Spider-Man? Tell me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, spider old guy. You know, I've, I, I mentioned earlier that I've been working with zebrafish for a long time. And recently, I just switched over to building up a spider colony. And there, there's a couple of reasons for that, 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 you know, the general principle that's got me really excited right now, that the thing that I'm, I'm most enthused about digging into in a general sense is uh, this field called ecological developmental science. Ecodevo for sure, short. You've probably heard of EvoDevo. There's also this thing called Ecodevo, which is trying to map out the interactions between the environment and developmental processes. Is this anything we're just talking about? How things are, you know, it's environment and genetics are working together. And this is saying, yeah, it's environment, it's, an, it's ecology and development are working together to shape organisms. And I, I switched from zebrafish because zebrafish, you can't do that. Zebrafish are not found in the United States. They're definitely not found in Minnesota. You have to go to India uh, to work on them in their natural environment. So we don't have this pool of variation present in natural population. So I've been kind of looking around for, oh, what's a, what's a good organism that's ubiquitous, that's everywhere, that's easy to work with, and that will have a lot of natural variation in the population, and, you, and that you could then ask, how does it interact with its environment? And spiders are just a natural one to pick, because they're pretty easy to work with, they're adorable. Um, people don't generally, you know, you generally don't find people using pesticides against spiders, for instance which will be a problem with working with a lot of agriculturally important organisms. So it means we can just look at how are they interacting with humans in their natural environment. So that's that's my long-term goal right now is, is let's work out the ecological conditions around spiders and let's look how that affects their early development. And how does that get scaled out? What is the broader scale view of how that affects ecology, humanity, society as large? Well, uh, there's there's a couple ways. First of all, let me mention, as I said, I'm, I'm a basic scientist. I don't care. <laughs> I don't care whether it saves people's lives or anything. I'm more interested in just looking at the basic knowledge and how how do these things work together? But, you know, the kinds of things we're looking at right now is 
these spe- these spider species I'm working with is synanthropic. That means it lives with human beings. So they're they're in your house right now, and they require human beings to survive. They would not survive a Minnesota winter, for instance. But by huddling in your house, they we can last out even minus twenty degrees centigrade. So that's one interesting aspect of them is how do they interact with human beings? Uh, but another is we are changing our environment in dangerous ways. There was there was an interesting article in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago about the insect apocalypse that we're seeing a decline in insect numbers all across the country and nobody knows why. So one of the things I'm interested in is just okay, spiders depend on insects. Are we going to be able to monitor a change in spider populations that correlates with changes in insect populations? Can I go out? You know, I'm in rural Midwestern United States. Can I go out to local farms and find, you know, where they use a lot of pesticides and, and herbicides? And can I find a difference in spider populations there versus here in town where we're not, we tend not to spray those things all over the place? So the idea is to use this as a model to work out how human intervention affects another organism. It's so complicated. There's so many variables, the number of homes, the number of dumpsters. <laughs> it's uh yeah, science is hard. Yes. Yeah, I I know that I've been working so I'm, I'm going this spring I'm going to be getting together with a bunch of people and we're going to go out to various houses. And one of the things I got to work out is a questionnaire that just asks all of these things about how they manage their house. Because those are variables that affect the spiders. Do do you keep a cluttered garage, for instance? Do you do you actually sweep out cobwebs in your garage? Those are going to make a difference. So I I want to take a look at that and see what's going on. Uh, is is your garage located right next to a garden that you spray herbicides on? So I've got to get all those variables worked out ahead of time so that we can do this survey and ask, okay, what's happening to the spider populations in this area? That's a tough one. So I, there's got to be a story here of some kind, and I want to I want to get into that a little before. Before we wrap up, you're pr- okay. you're pretty you're a pretty well known, well respected uh, atheism slash anti creationism advocate, and I'm curious why. What's your story? What was it like growing up? <laughs> oh man, it's a it's a boring story. I'm sorry. Um, you know, I grew up in a very liberal household. My my father was you know, radically pro union. Uh, was pretty much an unbeliever himself. Growing up, I attended the Lutheran church as a child, but I never really believed. And this was this was one of those nice, soft, evangelical Lutheran churches that, yeah, you can do anything you want. You know, when I, when I went to my pastor and said, you know, I think I'm an atheist, um, he said, oh, that's okay. <laughs> so, there was, it was a very low-pressure sort of environment. So, you know, I, I can't argue that I'm having some virulent reaction against my conservative upbringing because I didn't have one of those. Uh, what really got me going is, you know, I made an early commitment to science. This is my career. Is I, I wanted to be a scientist. I really wanted to understand biology because that was my focus. I was really interested in biological organisms. And uh, I became radicalized when I went to college. And have you been to college recently? It's a lot. There's all... Yeah, there's always some weird preacher who will come onto campus and, you know, hector the students. Yeah, you're all going to hell, you lesbians, and things like this. And uh, I got into listening to some of these people. So, you know, I attended some of their talks. And they, they were horrible. Uh, they completely mangled biology. And it made me angry to see that here are these people who are apparently respected by somebody. And they're coming into a campus and they're lying to the students. 
students. So, for example, almost 20 years ago, when I started here at, at Morris, started here teaching at the University of Minnesota Morris, I was horrified to discover that I was teaching cell biology, and outside my classroom, there was a, a youth pastor who had put up little signs telling the students that they should come to his talks and they would learn about the lies you are being taught in cell biology. <laughs> it's, br- it's brilliant as an advert, targeted advertising. Yes. And, you know, I, I, I actually went to a couple of his sessions, you know, just quietly sat in the back and didn't disrupt anything. But basically what he was doing was showing Kent Hovind videos. Kent Hovind knows nothing about biology. Uh, he's, he's a terribly ignorant person. And that kind of thing just infuriated me that, you know, I'm, I'm investing all this time and effort into teaching young people the best science that we know, and there is a group of people out there who are actively conspiring to undermine it. And, and I started off just getting infuriated at college-level interventions from these people, but then, you know, you discover how poorly you're taught in, in public schools about this stuff. And I realized all of a sudden that, you know, when I was growing up, they never mentioned the evolution word in any of the classes I took in grade school. And I grew up in this liberal Seattle suburb, right? It's You wouldn't think there was a problem there, but it was never, ever discussed. And it just sort of sunk in that, oh, that, that's really weird. I, I had spent a lot of time in the library reading about it, but it was all self-taught, all you know, going off and reading the books to find out what was going on. But realizing that it had, you know, in, in addition to the people actively preaching lies, there were people who were suppressing the teaching of good science in the schools. That really bothered me. And, and that's where I started getting really on their case. All in the name of love and happiness, we need to hate each other and find differences, <laughs> right? That, that's what gets us to the yes. good place. Yeah, and it's it's an unfortunate thing too because, um, as I said, there's there's a lot of Christians out there who do not believe this garbage, who are who are fine with science, um, who are not intolerant bigots. And what's happening is that there there's this powerful group that has a lot of influence that is doing the opposite, that is preaching bigotry and ignorance. And as we were talking about earlier, what can you do to about this? The thing is that it's it's not just passively being communicated; it is active miscommunication that is trying to undermine people's understanding of the world. And uh, I, I feel a responsibility to get up and speak out against it. Yeah, it's tough. Gandhi can only win so many battles when the other side the other <laughs> side has bullets. And yeah, I, I mean that's that's one approach is okay. We'll just we'll just sit back and we'll teach science the best we can. But at the same time, there are people who are teaching anti-science the best they can. And Putin, Putin's know, killing it with that. He's 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 great with his <laughs> Facebook trolls. Right. Yeah. And and part of the problem too is that I, I will freely confess this that us scientists tend to be a non-charismatic bunch. We're not selected for how persuasive we are. We're selected for how how well we understand the science and you go up against a preacher the these guys have that's all they're selected for is rhetoric and presentation and you know willingness to lie persuasively i don't even think necessarily it's lying i think it i think it's ignorance so yeah. i i think it definitely depends on the person if if they, i mean you see a lot of these evangelicals with like the eight million dollar mansions and just crushing it that that's another story but i don't think it's necessarily lying and i think it's dangerous uh-huh. to i think it's dangerous to call it lying i think it's much more unconscious willful ignorance 
on, on, yeah. on the part of people that think they're doing the right thing, but have never really questioned what that right thing is. Right. That, that, that what muddies the waters here is you are considering their intent, that you know, they're, they're not intending to lie. They don't mean to be dishonest in a presentation. And I'm sitting here saying, that's true. I, I agree that yeah, it is just ignorance, but intent doesn't matter. That when when you're doing this sort of when when you're working so hard, you know, there ought to be an obligation if you are an anti-evolutionist to actually understand evolution as evolutionary biology is presented, and they feel no motivation to do that, and that turns it from oh well, I just don't know. You know, if I, if I don't know something, if I'm not positive about something, I just say oh, you know I'm going to have to go look that up, and learn some more about it. I don't come down solidly on one side or the other, and if I did. That would be misrepresenting my awareness of, of the subject. That's good. There's no nuance. And I think the nuance needs to be there be- yeah. because y- you can't, or, yeah. I, I, yeah. And this is not to say everyone listening that all religious people are evil or anything of that nature. If, if yeah. you guys haven't figured out how things work, then that's perfectly fine. I would invite people to read the Old and the New Testament. And one, we have an asshole that picks favorites. And in the new one, we love everyone and we're really nice and cuddly. That, I think that'll, I think that alone is enough to make you question things. But that's, uh, then that just was what did it for me personally. I was Catholic for quite a long time and have since, have uh-huh. since escaped that to look more into the nature of reality. But that's, uh, that's enough on my high horse, so to speak. Is there anything else that you think people should know? Do you have a quote, a call to action, anything you want to leave people with? Oh, well, if, if I were to make a call for action, it would, it would be to get motivated at the local level. That one of the things that is really really crippling us right now is that the forces of ignorance have been smart, (laughs) been really clever by going for the grassroots, by doing things like signing up for school boards, running for school board positions, uh, city council, working, working with local PTAs, all that sort of stuff really makes a big difference in how schools respond. And on the flip side, you know, most of us are thinking, ah, you know, that's, that's a lot of boring, grinding work. And I'm really smart and I have a PhD. I should aim higher than that. So yeah, if I'm not running for president of the United States, I'm not going to do it. And, and that's been a problem because what's happened now is we've got school boards. School boards are nightmares right now. Uh, they're full of religious people who have religious ideological motivations for crippling education. And we need more people like me and you doing that sort of thing. Paul Graham's a famous, uh, famous accelerator startup guy. He runs Y Combinator and he has an expression. You got to do things that don't scale, at least initially. And I think, I yeah. think that's a good, a good, uh, a good explanation of that. I also think, though, when you are selling to typically more intelligent people, there's more effort that needs to go in versus the flip side. You can kind yeah. of just look at that. I mean, if you look at just education levels across states, you can kind of see where certain right. things where certain things trend. Is there anything else that you're worried about? Anything else? Well, well, let me go back for just a moment. I would argue, though, that working with the school board does scale because you know, it's a place where you can influence a whole lot of people and you can do things like shape what kind of teachers get hired in the school, which then has other consequences on you know, what what happens with the kids who are graduating, and, and it can change the whole character of the community. So it's it's not glamorous work, but it does scale. That's a better point. What was it like moving from Seattle to Mor- Morris, <laughs> Minnesota? I actually moved. I moved from Seattle to Utah to Philadelphia, and then to Morris. Um, it was it was culture shock for sure. Uh, but it's a, it's a nice quiet seat. I really like living here now. So it's. You know, it's a little bit more bucolic, but it's much more pleasant. And there's no traffic to worry about. Just, it's nice. not raining all the time, so you don't have to jump out of a building or something. That, yeah, 
that, that was insensitive. Just... I'm sorry, guys, but Seattle sucks. Seattle <laughs> sucks okay. for certain reasons. Bezos as well. Oh, I like the rain. You, you like I prefer, the rain. I, prefer, I did. I would prefer the rain to minus 20 degrees okay, C. Okay, I will give you that one. We certainly don't want the rain <laughs> in minus 20 degrees C. It wouldn't be rain. <laughs> guys, I want to wish you a happy new year. This is actually going to be belated because this is coming out later, but it's new year when we're recording this and hopefully you guys have something awesome that you're working on. Any any big goals for you this year? I know you said you're not much of a, a new year type guy, but I'm going to call you. I'm going to call uh, you out and say I want a goal. Well, I've, I've had a, I'm currently on sabbatical and I've got two goals in my sabbatical. One is to set up this spider system and get some preliminary work so I can put students to work on it. So that's one big goal. Uh, that's when I'm advancing them pretty quickly. And the other one is I'm working on a book about developmental biology. Very cool. That's a good so, one to punch. Yeah. yeah so that, that's enough. I don't have to do anything. That else. is enough. Well, thanks for co- thanks for yeah. coming on today. I like PZ. PZ. I like the nickname. So we'll we'll stick with that. Where's the best place for people okay. to find you and learn more? Uh, you can find me on Freethought Blogs, freethoughtblogs.com and in Fringula. I won't tell you to go searching for Fringula because nobody can spell it. Just go to Freethought Blogs. And we'll have yeah, links and everything in the show notes, guys. And it's PZ Myers, <laughs> much easier to spell. Thanks for, thanks for yeah. coming on today. This has been fun. Okay. It's been mm-hmm. great fun. Talk, Talk to, to you later. later Cheers. If you want more of the Disruptors, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or go to disruptors.fm where you'll find tons of audio and video interview stories with leaders in the fields of genetics, cryptocurrency, longevity, AI, space, VR, and much, much more. You can also follow me on Twitter at MattWardIO. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a quick review on iTunes at disruptors.fm slash iTunes to help more people discover the podcast and help us make a bigger impact.